While our children leave for Children's Church, you can turn to our passage for this morning. Our passage for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to go through uh, verses 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 22, 5. I'm not going to read through it today for us. I'm going to, we're just going to go through and discover it together. It's a long passage, so I won't go through reading through the whole thing. Um, and I, I, I had uh, a, an illustration introducing us to the idea of, uh, of desperation, because that's what's going on in our passage today. But I think, uh, I think what Ken just shared with us with that, I believe the, the call from the third plane, I think, um, from a people who are responding to a very desperate and dark time. And we see it, we saw people there who were somehow able to turn to God and trust God during a very desperate time. And our passage today deals with David in a very desperate time in his life. And this is a young man uh, who's been anointed to be the next king who is learning what it means to trust God during the desperate and dark times of his life. And that's uh, what's going on in our passage today. Uh, David is at a very desperate moment in his life. Um, and we're, we're continuing the story of David in 1 Samuel. Um, David's story began... Uh, Almost like Hercules in, uh, in Disney's Hercules. He went from zero to hero in no time flat. He, uh, he became a, a giant slayer from being a sheep herder. He went from being a giant slay- slayer to a great leader of the Israelite armies. He was defeating Philistines left and right, the great enemy of Israel. And they sang songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands. Things were looking good for the anointed king of David of uh, Israel. Everyone loved David. Well, not everyone. There was one important person who did not like David very much. His name was Saul. Saul was the king. Saul was envious of David. He hated him. He wanted him dead. In fact, he tried to kill him several times by throwing spears at him, which he barely missed, and by sending his servants to David. And by servants, of course, we mean assassins to try and kill David, even though David had just married uh, Saul's daughter. He was his son-in-law. He sent assassins to try and kill David. And that's kind of where David has been. He's been fleeing Saul. He's been fleeing Saul's assassins. Um, he knows Saul is trying to kill him, but for a while he didn't quite understand why. And that's where we came to our, our where we were in the last time when we came to David was in chapter 20. David uh, went to his only friend Jonathan, who happened to be Saul's firstborn son, and uh, he demanded an answer as to why is Saul trying to kill me? Jonathan didn't know. And so they concocted this plan to try and reveal Saul's true intentions for David, not just so David can know, but so Jonathan can know as well. Why was Saul trying to kill David? 
Well, in chapter 20, David and Jonathan found out, without a doubt, that Saul was trying to kill David. And why? Because Saul knew David was going to be the next king. He was anointed as the next king. And Saul threw a spear at Jonathan, trying to kill his own son, just like he was trying to kill David, because he knew Jonathan was hiding David. And so Jonathan went to David's hiding place out in the field. They both wept and grieved with each other because of Saul's murderous intentions towards David, and David once again fled. And that's where we are in our passage today. David is once again fleeing. And if it it feels repetitive to you at this point, that's because that's been kind of the theme for David the past three chapters. Chapter 19, he fled and found refuge in Samuel for a brief moment. And then he fled in chapter 20 and found some refuge in Jonathan for a brief moment. And now he's fleeing again, but his options for safety and refuge are dwindling. So we're at chapter 21, verse 1. David is looking for two essential things. One of them is food. Verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Okay, so David comes to a town called Nob, which is about three miles south of where he just was. And it's a a couple miles north of Jerusalem. Shiloh is normally the uh, sanctuary site of the priests, where their priestly duties um, are done and practiced. But since the invasion of the Philistines into Israelite territory, Nob has apparently become the primary sanctuary site for priests. And so David goes there. And we know that this is not the first time that David has interacted with Ahimelech. We learn Uh, Later on in chapter 22, Ahimelech is speaking with Saul, arguing with him, and he says, is today the first time I have inquired of God for David? No. David has been to Ahimelech many times. And so we know there's something different about David's approach today because when when Ahimelech comes to meet David, he's trembling. You might expect David would be the one that's trembling because he's the one fleeing. He's the one that is fearing for his life, but... No, it's the priest. So what's different? Surely the fact that David had been fleeing for his life would have been apparent. He probably looked like a mess. He probably looked like he hasn't slept, like he was hungry. He probably looked like a desperate man on the run. But more than anything, what stands out to Ahimelech is the fact that David came alone. A prominent commander in the king's army would not have ever traveled without some sort of entourage. And so Ahimelech comes out to meet David trembling, and the question becomes, why is Ahimelech afraid? Is he afraid of David? Is he afraid that David is going to kill him? We've actually seen a similar situation before in chapter 16, when Saul and Samuel have a rift, and Samuel tells Saul that the Lord says, you are no longer the king. He goes to Bethlehem, and he's going to anoint a new king there. And the elders of Bethlehem come out to Samuel, and they're trembling. And they're trembling because they know of the rift between Samuel and Saul. And they're fearing retribution from the king by aiding uh, Samuel. And that is similar, similar to what is going on here. 
If there is conflict between David and Saul, which David approaching alone probably would indicate to Ahimelech, then there would be a great danger in helping David. Ahimelech is not afraid of David, but afraid of the retribution of Saul. Let's continue on, verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Okay, so what is David saying here? He's saying, actually, I'm, I'm not by myself. I'm on a secret mission from the king. And I have men who are waiting for me here in hiding. In fact, the secret mission was so secret and so urgent that David left without eating. And as we'll learn in just a second, he left without a weapon. Uh, David lies to Abimelech. Or sorry, Ahimelech. I'm going to say Abimelech about 20 times, I'm sure. It's Ahimelech. And in doing so, he's probably hoping to spare Ahimelech um, from the wrath of Saul. If Saul finds out what he's, that David was here, if Ahimelech wasn't aware of Saul's pursuit of David and if his, of his status as a fugitive, then the hope is that Saul would not blame Ahimelech for aiding David. So David is trying to get aid from Ahimelech, but also protect him at the same time. But we'll see in chapter 22 that David's strategy proves to be disastrous for the priests and the people of Nob. And then David asked for five loaves of bread. Um, and it seems to me that David is asking for enough bread for, to feed a, a, a small retinue of men. But really all it's going to feed is one very hungry fugitive. Verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. Okay, so you and I might hear David's story and think, uh, think that it's a flimsy excuse or flimsy story. Not very convincing. And maybe Ahimelech thinks that too. But he does seem to at least know better than to further question David about it. About his secret mission. Instead, what the high priest does is he accepts David's offer. Or his story. And he offers him some bread. But of course there's some problem. There's no, there's no ordinary bread left. All that's left is sanctified bread. Holy bread. All right, and we, we see this. This is a reference uh, to Leviticus 24. There the Lord commands Moses and Aaron that Aaron would need to bake 12 loaves of bread and put them out on the table um, in the sanctuary and, or in the, in, the, um, in the holy site and before the Lord. And they were to represent God's provision for the people of Israel. And it was a provision for the priests. Only the priests were supposed to eat it. It was not for the normal person to eat. But seeing as David, the anointed one of the Lord, seemed desperate for food, Ahimelech was willing to make this provision for David and his men as long as they had kept themselves sexually pure. And so David reassures him. Verse 5. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread 
on the day it is taken away. Okay, so David's answer is, you know, every time I've come to you, I've kept myself pure in this way. How much more so now that I'm on this important secret mission? Uh, We haven't touched a woman. So the priest gives him the bread. And you must notice that the author makes note of what the bread is called, the bread of the presence. David is fleeing and needs sustenance, and he happens to be fed with the bread of the presence of the Lord. And then as custom, that bread is removed. It's replaced with hot bread. Every Sabbath, they're supposed to replace this bread. And so that's, that's what's happening. Okay, so we see his, his need for food is met here with Ahimelech at Nob. And now he needs a weapon to protect himself. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Okay, so this is, this is kind of a cryptic verse. It doesn't really have a lot of relevance to our story here and now. It'll have a lot of relevance in chapter 22. Um, you can tell it's kind of a, an ominous detail that the author is giving us. There's apparently a man detained nearby. He can hear what's going on. He can hear what Ahimelech and David are talking about. And he's an Edomite. He was probably, Saul had defeated the Edomites back in chapter 14. He was probably a prisoner of war that Saul found useful somehow. And he's being detained in the the city of Nob. Now, why is he being detained at a sanctuary site? I have no idea. Your your guess is as good as mine. But But the verse has an ominous tone to it. But we'll move on. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then you have not here a spear. Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Again, I find David's story a little flimsy. Uh, What kind of mission could David have possibly be given that required a weapon, but was so urgent that the king wouldn't allow him to pick one up? And why would David expect to find a weapon from a bunch of priests at Nob? Well, the answer is probably because he knew there was at least one weapon here. Um, Again, Ahimelech has the wisdom not to question David's story, and he responds, verse 9. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, is here wrapped in the cloth behind the the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Okay, and David, probably after his fight with Goliath, deposited the sword here as a gift of dedication, which is something you could do, um, deposit a gift like that, and then you could redeem it later on. Okay, so Ahimelech has clearly stored it and taken good care of it. Um, But you have to remember, this is Goliath's sword. There was probably a reason that David dedicated it instead of taking it as his own earlier. My guess is that it's really big. It's really big, and it's really heavy. Um, It's probably a really great sword, but it's probably just two hands and as tall as David. But like David said, there's, there's nothing like Goliath's sword, and there wasn't anything else there, so he took it. And David now had two things he desperately needed as a fugitive on the run, food and a weapon. And now he flees again, and he flees to a really peculiar place. All right, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. 
And the, service, the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. Okay, so David flees Saul. That means he flees the territories of Saul. He flees uh, the territories of Israel. He goes to a place where maybe Saul couldn't reach him, which is the Philistine city of Gath. Um, it shows you how much he feared Saul, how desperately afraid he was of Saul, that he was willing to go to Gath. All right, Gath, if you remember, Gath is the city that Goliath himself was from. And so it's amazing. He gets the sword of Goliath, and then he goes to Gath, the city of Goliath. And if his hope was to remain incognito, um, it, it doesn't work for very long. They figure out who he is quickly. And part of this is because, of course, the, the soldiers of Gath would know who David is. I mean, think of all the, all the people David has impacted through all his victories. I mean, the, the, the widows, the, the children, the men who had lost soldiers and friends because of David. Everybody would have known who David was. But David is desperate, and so he flees to Gath. Um, my guess is he hides the Goliath's sword. I mean, who, or maybe he doesn't. Maybe that's why he's caught so quickly. I don't know. But he, he flees to Gath. He's hoping to remain incognito. It doesn't va- last very long. Um, and so he, he's discovered. He realizes he's made a huge mistake. He can't remain hidden. Uh, the servants of Gath recognize him. They call him the king of the land, a title that no doubt acknowledges his accolades in battle but also unintentionally gives confirmation of his election as the future king of Israel. They recognize David. They even know the song sung of David by the Israelite women. There is no hiding in Gath for David. And verse 12 shows us that David realized he was in just as much danger in Achish's court as he would have been in Saul's court. So a desperate man who has been fleeing for his life with no rest comes with uh, comes up with a desperate solution for his predicament. Let's see what it is. Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Notice Akish's response to David. He uses the word for what essentially means raving mad three times. This man is mad. He's a madman. He's a madman. It is utterly clear that David was successful in making himself as revolting as possible to the king. Okay, so, I mean, think about it. David had a hard task. He had to make himself so revolting to the king that the king would rather toss him out of the city than spend time killing the man. Wouldn't it just be, just be easier just to kill David? Why throw him out? But David somehow survives. The glamorous young hero of the previous episodes has been reduced to a revolting madman. But he survives somehow, and he continues his flight. Chapter 22, verse 1. 
David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there, uh, and they were there with him about 400 men. Okay, so David goes to the priestly city, then to the city of his enemies, then to dwelling in caves. Adullam is a city that is close, or a place that is close by to uh, Philistine territory, but it's, it's technically still in the tribal territory of Judah. Um, somehow David's family members hear about where David's dwelling, where he is, that he's in caves. Uh, he, that's all he has left, is to be dwelling in caves. But they come to him uh, to dwell in caves with him. Now, why is that? Uh, the, the reason would be because they, if they've heard about Saul's hostility towards David, then they would realize that they are in trouble too, that their lives are in danger as well. And so they come to be with David to hide from Saul. But then it's not just them. It's not just his family. All sorts of men who are in trouble come to him. Those who are, hurt, who are in distress, those who are in debt, those who were embittered, gathered around him. This is a description of men who are dispossessed and malcontent. Men with nothing to lose, who have been oppressed by the established order, as Robert Alter puts it. David had gained his own small militia of 400 men. And I believe, I would need to double check now that I think about it, but I believe that these become David's mighty men later on. But... All these men who might benefit from a change in king, a change in rulers, come to David. Okay, so that's, they're all dwelling in these caves. Continue on, verses 3 and 4. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. All right, so the fugitive style lifestyle would probably have been a harsh one living in caves. He's, uh, David's parents would have been uh, very old by this point. It would have been difficult th- for them to continue living like that. And the question becomes, if they can't live in the caves or in the tribes of Israel or if they can't hide in Gath, where in the world could they safely live? And the answer is Moab, of course. You know, why didn't I think of Moab. David takes them to the king of Moab, and the king accepts them. And they stay there safely as, as, as long as they need to. This is really interesting. Why would the king of Moab do this? And you might remember that the great-grandmother of David was a young woman you might have heard of before. Her name was Ruth, who happened to be a Moabitess. And since that's the only connection we have with David and the king of Moab, I think it's safe to assume that David's Moabite ancestry played a role, an important role, in securing safety and shelter for his family. It's amazing to think about how the extraordinary events of the book of Ruth have played a role, um, aside from other important things, they've played a role in securing a safe place for David and his family. All right? And that's a pretty big coincidence. But what should David do now? Should he keep running? Has God anything to say to his anointed one? Verse 5. 
And the prophet Gad said, said to David, Do not remain in stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Okay, who is Gad? I don't know who Gad is. Gad just appears without explanation or introduction. Uh, he plays a role, a role in David's life later on. But what is important is that God is still clearly keeping open communication with David, with his anointed promised king. At this point, David would probably be wondering, I mean, what in the world is going on? Um, and so uh, God's guiding hand in David's life is, is evident here. David can't remain in Moab. He must go to the forest of Hereth, which is an area to the west of the Dead Sea. It's a terrain that might provide some safety from the eyes of Saul and his men. So David might be a fugitive, desperately fleeing the hand of Saul, but he has something that Saul does not have, and that is the guiding word of the Lord. And we will learn that that will make all the difference in David's life. And that's the end of our passage. And we have to remember that David is a young man who has only experienced success, as far as we can tell, after he has been anointed, and now is facing this excruciatingly difficult time in his life, the darkest time in his life. And he's still learning about God and what it means to trust God during these dark times. Can he trust God during these dark times? And so I think there's a, a couple things that David learns that we learn as well that I have here. First, uh, God's plans and purposes are not thwarted by our failures. And he still shows grace to us even when we do not deserve it. And so I think that's a, a long way to just say that God shows grace to us even in our failures. I, I think that's uh, some of the good news from David's story here. It's sometimes easy to forget that David is a man prone to the same shortcomings as each one of us. We see him often as the glorious warrior, the king, the giant slayer, the gold standard for Israel's kings, the man after God's own heart. But when David became desperate, he did what any of us would be tempted to do, and that is to trust our own machinations rather than to trust the Lord. And that's what David does here. He lies and he deceives. Now, I'm not trying to make too much of a judgment here on, uh, on David's actions when the, the text doesn't take the time to explain to us whether or not they are wrong or right. Um, but he does lie and he does deceive. And we know later on that David's propensity to lie becomes a problem when he is king. And yet, despite David's actions, we see suddenly and concretely that the hand of the Lord is providing for David. Whether it's God providing the bread of the presence or God delivering David from death at the hands of the Philistines in their own city, these aren't coincidences. Whether or not you think what David did was wrong, God graciously provides for him, despite what he does. And so the same is true for us. We fail a lot, but God's plans and purposes are not thwarted by our failures, and he still shows us grace and provides, even though we don't deserve it. And then secondly, the appropriate response to God's grace in our lives is to rely on him as a strong shelter moving forward. Um, I think this is a, a lesson that David learns. We don't learn this 
particularly from this text, but we learn, we will learn this from the, the psalm that David writes as a response into what happens in this text. So I think there's probably about four psalms that David writes on these passages alone um, in this story. I want to focus on one, Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 is a response to David being freed from the hand of the king uh, Achish. And I don't have those verses up here. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 34 in your Bible. Turn to Psalm 34. Or get to it on your iPad or iPhone or whatever device you have. Psalm 34. And you can listen. It says, Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Okay, I think if David is learning about God and how God works in his life during his darkest hours, we see here that he is giving credit to God for his deliverance. Um, from Gath. Uh, if David freed himself, then why would he give the Lord any credit? He credits God to his deliverance. Verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So David, looking back at these events, acknowledges that it was the Lord who saved him. His antics are given zero credit here. Verses 8 through 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David's response to the Lord's deliverance is to remember to take refuge in him. When times are desperate, there is no one better to trust. Verses 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is such a curious thing for David to write in reflecting upon the events in Gath because he is essentially advocating for the opposite of what he did. Do you want to prolong your days? Then don't deceive. It's interesting because isn't that the opposite of what you did and you lived? But if that's the case, then why doesn't David advocate for deception in order to live? And again, I think he's saying that He's reflecting and he's realizing that is not because of his antics that he was saved, but because of the grace of the Lord in his life that he was saved, that he was given deliverance. It was not because of his antics, it was despite them. When he reflects back, he gives the Lord credit. Verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth, 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So we get here a glimpse of how David felt, crying, crushed, brokenhearted. And the lesson that he has learned is that the Lord listens to him when he is in pain. And finally, verses 19 through 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, this is not to say that if you trust the Lord, nothing bad will ever happen to you. I think David clearly knows that. But David's point is that the Lord is reliable, and ultimately the Lord is worth trusting in your darkest hour, and ultimately he provides salvation and deliverance for his saints. So what do we learn from David's psalm in response to the events in Gath? David was not spared because he was a, uh, because of his prowess as a thespian. Uh, he was not saved because he was extremely clever or because he was a good liar. The Lord showed David grace in spite of his actions, not because of them. David's failure to trust the Lord did not thwart the Lord's plans, but the Lord graciously provided for David in spite of them. And as a result, David was able to reflect on God's grace in his life and to praise him and to proclaim him to others and to rely on him and to see why it is good to obey him. And so the Lord uses these dark hours in David's life to teach him about himself and to prepare him for his role as the king. And this is my hope for us as well today, that we will recognize God's undeserved grace in our lives, how he has worked in spite of our failures, and that we would respond like David does in the psalm and allow the grace of God in our lives to change us for the better and to recognize that God is worthy of taking refuge in and trusting even in our darkest times. Um, and I think it's a... I think it's Tim Keller who said, uh, Jesus in his darkest hour at Gethsemane and on the cross did not turn away from his mission to die for our sakes and to save us from his, our sin. And if he did not abandon us in his darkest hour, then surely we can expect that he would not abandon us in our darkest hour. And so the Lord is worthy of putting our trust Um, Let me end there and pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are worthy of trusting, Lord. That, Lord, when 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 things are darkest, we can turn to you. Lord, knowing that no matter what, one day you, you will make all things right. And Lord, knowing that in our darkest pains and in our fears, that you hear us. And Lord, that we can trust you. And that's such an easy thing to forget when times are hard. So please help us to remember that, to reflect on how you have shown us grace in our lives in the past, that it might strengthen and grow our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.